78644 is brought to you by Texas Hatters, Corazon Team Austin Realtors, The Little Alamo Airbnb, El Rey Bar and Nightclub, Wendy R. Bookery and Gifts, and Birdie House. Our in-kind sponsors are Willigan's Island, Courthouse Nights, Printing Solutions, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. If you went around and asked people what Texas music sounded like, what do you think they'd say? Texas music to me is singer, songwriter, guitarist, with just a little bit of twang, but a lot of guitar and a lot of folk and soul. Country and rap, maybe some punk guitar. Probably country music, that makes me, yeah, that makes me think about Texas. Like a jazzy country star. <laughs> Willie Nelson. <laughs> I don't know, Willie, what do you think? It ain't easy. Once you think uh, it's easy, then you're in trouble. If you wake up knowing that this is going to be a hard day today because you got work to do, people to talk to, things to do, you'll make it. Well, maybe that's just it. Maybe Texas music isn't as much a sound as it is a philosophy. Ain't that a daisy? I'm Stephen Collins, and this is 78644. from what you know to gain a new perspective and appreciation for where you come from. That's the journey that Van Darien found herself upon after making the move from Texas to Nashville, Tennessee. After forging her path as an artist and enduring a slew of life changes along the way, she became nostalgic for the people and places that she had left behind. This deeply personal journey of growth, reflection, and discovery is the driving force behind her introspective record, Levy. We got a chance to speak with Van Darien on a Zoom call, and she caught us up with what she's been up to. So uh, I'm friends with Parker Chapin, and he lives okay. out in uh, Lockhart, and they've recently like moved to Lockhart from Austin, and he's the one that showed me uh, Martindale River Cafe or whatever. Yeah. Did I say that right? That's yeah. right, yeah. It's almost like you know Austin starting over. It's the the beginning stages of something great. Yeah, yeah, it feels like that. It feels like, but it's all very organic and and uh, there's a real community. So anyway, I'm glad you've gotten a that. chance to come out. Have you now? You're doing a show, right? Yeah, I'm playing Martindale River Cafe on the 30th of June. Of June, okay. And um, that'll be my first time playing there. Um, I had a really awesome avocado uh, toast there. I really enjoy its vibe, so I can't wait to to play there and hang out with all the locals. So tell me a little bit about how your journey got started with uh, songs and playing music and that kind of thing. Well, I started singing when I was a little girl. I was like nine whenever I started singing. And then I picked up the guitar 
probably about 21. So I sang for a long time and and almost started writing songs immediately. It was it was kind of a vehicle to play my songs. And I I mean, I was really playing shows before I was ready to be playing shows. Um, I had an opportunity to open for Josh Greider at the White Elephant Saloon for like this amazing, like, uh, what was it called? Clubhouse concerts. So the, they were like really quiet concerts where everybody would listen and tell stories and I couldn't say no to it. So I said yes before I had 30 minutes of material. <laughs> and so I've been playing a long time now. It really started as poetry and I always just loved writing poems in the way that the, the rhythm of the words all went together and, and I started going to um, like campfires and stuff. Larry Joe Taylor would used to, used to have little campfires, and you would get to see these songwriters, these massive songwriters, and telling the stories behind their songs. And I really just fell in love with the storytelling and the the aspect of like creating another universe or another world and kind of letting it transport you. A lot of times it's just a weird, you know, whenever you're like laying in bed and you can't stop thinking and you like, sometimes you just want to like get, figure it out until it clicks. And, um, I have weird little ideas that I just, am sort of working out in my head. And sometimes they work out better if I write them almost like a subconscious kind of thing that happens. Sometimes it, I want to finish a song just to find out how the story ends. And I really like that concept of like, I'm typically autobiographical. It's something that has happened to me. But if in the case of it's not about me and I'm putting myself in someone else's shoes, sometimes you just want to know what happens to the characters in your songs. It's fun and it's play and it's an escape for me at least. Your your stuff is autobiographical then, so you're writing story songs mostly? Yeah, uh, like I have a song called American Steel that I wrote with my dad. It is very much so a story about my dad's life. And, and so it may not be my story, but it is his story. And it is also the story of the men like him that just grew up creating the world around us. I remember playing this place and um, it was like Cadillac Pizza and I can't remember what city it was in, but there was a partition there. It was like a shelf partition type thing and it was massive. It was, you know, 10 by 10 feet tall, you know, and I remember looking at it and being like, I remember building that with my dad. This place in the middle, you know, just a random place near Dallas that I happened to be playing and looking over me like, I remember building that with my dad. That's going to be around after he's gone. That's going to be around after I'm gone. And just thinking about the scope of the world around us and the fact that like actual men and women have built these buildings that we're like working in. And that's kind of incredible. And yeah, I don't know. It's so, so I'm trying to tell other people's stories as well. Yeah, that's cool. So what you were in Fort Worth and working in the music scene there, what prompted the move to Nashville? You know, Texas is a big state and I was playing five nights a week for three years and I I could 
continue doing that through the rest of my life. But I kind of felt like I was playing the same places. And I wanted to try to know that I at least tried to get myself out there and go bigger. And Nashville really kind of happened by a series of serendipitous events. I was in a band that shared a drummer with another band uh, called Somebody's Darling out of Dallas. Oh, yeah. And they moved. Yeah. They moved to Nashville and my drummer and his wife needed roommates. And I thought about it for about eight hours. And I was like, yeah, if I can be in Nashville on a Sunday and Margot Price and um, Brendan Benson and uh, Lee Nash are all just hanging out on a Sunday, this is, this is where it's happening. And I would like to be here. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I, I mean, just, I know you've the last couple of maybe year or so you've been working on a new record. So I haven't talked to anybody about it yet. So you'll be the first that I talk to. It's, um, it's called Bummer Town and it is the opposite of what it sounds like. Um, my last record had really, heavy themes of the Great Depression and just really serious subjects. And this is kind of, I wanted something that was lighter and more fun and kind of rock and roll. So I invited my buddy Daniel Markham up to Nashville and we spent four days writing. We wrote nine songs in three days and spent the fourth day just recording them and Half of them made it onto the record. So like five songs are the ones that we wrote together. And the other five are ones that I I did later on or before that even. It's kind of a concept album a little bit. It's a whole, it's its own little world. And it has like reoccurring characters that come alive and die and... You know, there's a there's a happy ending that um, ends with like a starship that takes you out of Bummer Town, and it's it's really fun. I love it, and it's kind of like a mixtape when you listen to it too. So like, lots of little '90s sounds on there, lots of alt rock vibes. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That's the the '90s kind of have the best music all around like my favorite country my favorite rock my favorite pop it's just all so good <laughs> yeah yeah i was really into um 90s country <laughs> like yeah. really into it and um we had like dozens of great female singers and country and then early 2000s i feel like it just really dwindled down it was like they stopped you know it was like really kind of focused on like maybe two yeah i can't think of many i'm like mm, what happened to faith hill and reba mcintyre and oh, reba, trisha yearwood yeah. where'd they go yeah. uh so levy is the title track to the record it's based off of my grandfather who i never got to meet he was he was very old when my dad was born he grew up in the great depression and raised his children through that he laid the brick under the highway that I live on. And, um, you know, another, you know, man that built the world around us, you know? And um, I wrote that song kind of from his perspective, thinking about 
ways to find solace through the hard times. And it was definitely about finding, you know, where his peace. And so the chorus comes in and talks about let the water wash over me. And that's kind of always been the way that I kind of get some peace is like just by sitting by some water or like if I can get it on my hands, I feel better, you know? So there are a lot of themes about water through the record. And there's a lot of themes of steel through the record. I, I was talking to my friend Stacy whenever I was trying to figure out what to call the record. I was like, well, it's where I like the line from the Highwaymen where he's like, uh, I was a damn builder, you know? And he's like, we're stealing water to collide. And I was like, I really want to call it that. <laughs> I just want to use that line from the Highwaymen and use that. And she's like, well, where do water and steel meet? And I was like, the levee. And she was like, that's what you should call the record. <laughs> so That's heavy. <laughs> yeah. I dig it. Yeah. You know, the only thing that I can think of that I want to say to people is to please just go out and support the artists that you love by the physical CDs and the physical, like, whatever, put money in their tip jar because the streaming services are really killing us. Um, it's so hard. To do it now so whoever whoever you love and are tempted to put play on spotify just go out and see them live and give them some money <laughs> It's gonna be the 
Harbor Cafe on June 30th, starting at 8 and goes to 10 p.m. Roatash Rao is a writer, animator, director, illustrator, and fine artist, and an advertising creative. He works as an art director at over 40 agencies around the country and was a creative director at the Sci-Fi Channel. He has won awards all the way from the One Show all the way to Cannes Film Festival. His directing work has been recognized by Entertainment Weekly, Rolling Stone, The Huffington Post, MTV, AICP, The One Show, Ad Critic, and many, many more. Roatash has a show that's happening at the Art House here in Lockhart, and he stopped by the studio, and we had a great conversation. Yeah, the, I guess the thing that I was thought about when I was a kid was I never... The, the idea of picking a career just seems so... It just seems like, why would you just pick one thing? And I, I never, it never made sense to me that you would just do a thing. And I remember especially growing up in the 80s, I don't know why, but business cards were such a big deal. And I remember like, you know, I'd go to family parties or whatever, and I'd see people handing out business cards. And a big part of the business card was that title. That title was such a big deal to people. And I'm like, why would you care about the title? Like you're, you know, you're whatever, like you're a creative director or you're, you know, you're, you know, head of a company or, um, marketing executive I just it never made I just didn't understand why a business card was this like forever stamp that you had to like carry around and so that thought alone just made me abandon the idea of picking a job and so it, at one point it occurred to me don't walk down the path of what you want to do walk down the path of what you want to say so what you want what you want to say seems like a much bigger version of a life and a career, because what you want to say can change uh, in the specific way you execute that say, you know, part. So that always seemed to be like at the heart of my, I guess, journey. It was like, what do I want to say? And what, what do I want to say is I want to make a joke about, you know, social media. Well, I'm going to do that with the painting. Uh, what I want to say is I want to make a story about, you know, being Indian and growing up in, a, in, a, in an Indian household um, in a very suburban American town. Well, to execute that properly, I should probably write a script. So I'll do that. It's still me. All those versions are still me, but it's what I want to say, not what I want to do. So you're across the gamut, started in advertising, I guess, right? Where was home? It wasn't California or what? It was. It was Rancho Cucamonga, California. It's in, It's about two, two, three hours northeast of Los Angeles, I guess, basically. You know, it was like, you ever seen E.T.? Remember the movie E.T.? And that that whole thing where they go off into that hills, into like that forest, and they're like, that's our, my childhood was, it was, it looked like that. Like we literally like in the 80s, we would get our bikes and, you know, of course there was no technology. So we got on our bikes and just rode to the mountains and you just disappeared. Um, to walk to class, you had to like walk through like uh, an orange grove. I felt like we lived in a forest. And it wasn't beach oriented. It was very like mountain oriented. My family was very, very keen on, um, obviously my brother and I, especially me, I'm older, to pick a proper career path. Um, somehow I was really good at math and um, the idea of me going to, to study chemistry seemed to be the right choice for some reason for my mom. So I spent a year studying chemistry and um, uh, I got into this program at San Jose State University, and I spent a year 
one semester doing honors chemistry because I was supposedly good enough. And then um, I was failing miserably that the, the teacher's aide, the, um, yeah, the class TA called me the worst student he'd ever seen. And uh, he said, what do you want to do? And I go, art. And he goes, get out of this class. Like, seriously, like you do not, no one, you do not belong here. Everyone here wants to be a scientist, a doctor, whatever, except you. So I took another semester, tried my best to keep up my grades. I sucked. I dropped out, went back to Southern California and um, found a school called Art Center. And Art Center said, what do you want to do? And I said, art. And they go, what kind of art? I'm like, everything, every single possible version of art. And they go, go into advertising because you'll learn how to basically learn how to think and you'll learn how to basically pitch, you know, the two skill you're probably going to want to have to learn for anything you want to do. You want to write screenplays, you want to write books, you want to, you know, whatever. You got to have to come up with ideas and be able to walk in a room and present those ideas and ideally sell those ideas. Um, and if nothing else, even for you, like you'll learn all these kind of skill sets. You'll learn how to be an art director, learn how to be a copywriter, learn how to work with photographers, illustrators. So it'll give you like this giant, you know, just, uh, it'll be, it's, the major is advertising, but you're basically learning 90 things of creativity that you don't even realize you're learning because it says advertising, but it's not just advertising. So that was the way it was put to me. And I'm like, I'm doing it. I got in, I did the program and I got in, I got a job right out of college. Like it was crazy how quickly I just like got right out of school, right into work. And within three years of being an art director, I go, I'm done. Literally everyone's like, what do you mean you're done? You just, you're, you're 25. Like, what do you mean you just got in? I go, I know, but I want to do more things. And I literally dropped out of my ad job, moved to New York City to go to an NYU summer film program because I want to be a director now. I'm like, I want to direct. I just, I feel like I could do that. And I've always wanted to do it. And I just think now's the time. Went to New York, did a, did a, did a summer workshop, came out, spent some time making a documentary film and built my spec reel. And then very soon after that, I met a guy who wanted to write screenplays. And I'm like, let's do that. Then I went to UCLA, did a screenwriting class while I was like writing with this guy and started learning how to write screenplays. Started pitching, writing, pitching, writing, pitching. Eventually our stuff, um, we ended up selling one idea um, to Fox, ended up making an animated TV pilot that we did that Lauren Michaels produced. And then at the same time we got um, a book series. We, we tried to sell a TV show as an animated like kids show. Uh, showed it to Nickelodeon, Disney, places nobody wanted it. HarperCollins eventually got a hold of it, and they go, this could be a good book series, and we turned it into a book series. And then suddenly now I'm illustrating books and, you know, co-authoring it with this guy. Peter Nelson wrote it, I drew it, and we both kind of concepted, I guess, the overall story, and that was just my version of, like, yeah, I want to write more. And this this series called, it's called... So the, there's three books called Herbert's Wormhole, which is um, about two kids who travel through, through the jungle gym slides to the future. And then the second book series is called Creature Keepers. And that's a four-book series about um, Bigfoot, Loch Ness, Chupacabra, and Yeti. Each book took about a year. So it was like a seven-year journey of like writing these books and illustrating these books. And that just got me more and more into like, I want to animate more. I like drawing. I spent so much time drawing these books. Um, I want to I want to do more of this in animation. So I started really getting into more animation, and then I I kind of went from being purely a live action director into kind of a combo CG live action guy, and then really into I want to really dedicate my time into animation. I love not knowing how to do something because the excitement is trying to figure it out. 
Like, how do you write a screenplay? I don't know. Well, I'm going to go to a class. I'm going to write, I'm going to go get books. I'm going to watch every behind the scenes documentary about a movie I love and find out how they wrote it, how they executed it, how they directed it. And so you're constantly being re-inspired because it's a whole new journey, you know? And that's another reason why I like the idea of um, thinking about, worrying about what you want to say, not worrying about what you want to do. I used to look at job titles and people who had whatever jobs of status, I always thought, it just seemed so precious. Like once you got that business card, basically you were like, so it was so precious. Like oh, I'm a creative director. Like it's such a precious thing. And I'm like that, that alone puts a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah. Um, also, I should also add, I used to, I was for a brief time, a creative director, not the creative director, but a creative director at the sci-fi channel in New York city. And I got the gig because I had been, been in the business many years had already built a director reel and they were looking for someone to kind of really come in and really like help brand. They were rebranding sci-fi. And this is like 2002 um, from um, basically a, a channel of science fiction to a channel of imagination because it opened up the world of bigger shows and a lot more options than just like, you know, space and whatever. So, and I didn't do this, but they, uh, they found the middle word of sci-fi being the word if, and if became the tagline of sci-fi. And so basically, if was the new brand of sci-fi. So they came to me and go, can you help create this world of if, like just make cool 15 second bumpers for the network and, you know, really fun ads that were just like crazy and weird and fun and doesn't have to be, again, like science fiction based. So um, I, it was a dream job for a while because I get to just write weird stuff and then direct it. So I was a creative director and I got to direct my own work. Yeah, that's it was so fun. much fun. And it yeah. was, again, we had budgets and I could do CG, so live action CG. And actually the people who actually helped me do all the CG were actually very inspiring for me to push me into stop motion. Cause they're like, you gotta, you gotta really wanna get to the, the core of what CG is, study Ray Harryhausen, study stop motion, you know, and properly learn it, what special effects means yeah. from, you know, how people really did it back in the day. During this time, I did this job and I got fired. And I got fired, I think, mainly because they saw me having a little bit, a little too many interests in other things. And as a creative director, they wanted you to be focused. Be, you know, I think I'm also not a corporate kind of guy. And I think that was a part of the job that I didn't realize. I was management now. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to be kind of a quote unquote artist. And so I went from like, again, I lived that business card version that I, I didn't want for a little while. And again, it was precious for a little while. And I hated myself for being so, I felt so important by having a creative record title on a business card. And then when I got fired, I'm like, okay, see, there's proof. Why did you make it so precious? This is to myself. And I, that was a good slap in the face to be like, I told you, yeah. I warned you about this. And now you did exactly what we, we fought against. And now let's just go back and be creative again. And so it was a good like lesson where I came to live up to my own words, basically. I guess five years ago, my buddy, Chad Ray, Chad was um, a teacher at UT. He was a professor, part of the advertising creative portfolio program called Texas Creative. And um, he was quitting. He was quitting to move on to do other things and they were looking for someone to replace him. And uh, friends recommended me. And they said, hey, why don't you teach and come over here and talk about all this stuff and even why I teach advertising is because of what I went through. So I'm like, okay, um, never really taught before, but um, I'm, you know, I'm interested. And then 
uh, when I went to go talk to the head of the department then, um, she said, have you done any teaching at all? And I go, all I've really done, to be honest, is like, when we did our seven books, uh, we would we would do some we would do book talks. You know, it wasn't like a book tour. We would just do talks at, at elementary schools or fourth grade books, elementary schools. We did some at like libraries. You know, some at whatever um, school fairs, whatever. And um, all we tried to do was try to inspire fourth fifth graders to write their own stories. So we would like we had a presentation. I drew on the chalkboard. We tried to get kids to get involved and like, let's write a story right now. Let's let's all invent a story. You think of a bad event that could have happened on the bus day on the way to school. You, what could have been the weirdest thing that happened to that? And we just write these stories together, and it was so much fun. And you just got the class excited. And the head of the department then said, just do that. Do that here. Just do it. It's college, but it's the same thing. It's you're trying to get them inspired to create their own stuff. And I'm like, okay, that sounds fun. And then uh, obviously, I got the job, and I moved here four years ago, and and now um, it's been the most rewarding thing that I think I've really ever done because you just you you see the light go on in these in these students' eyes, you know, when they finally cross over to this like, oh, that's 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 my idea, but like finally maybe fully realized and executed and. And I make, I have an art director class and I actually make him go out and do short films. I'm like, you have an iPhone. Like, there's no reason why you can't make a film. It looks just as good as what right we now. had, if not better. You know? so, so they're like, I don't know. I've never shot a film before. I've never, I don't even know how to do sound. I don't even know how to edit. And I'm like, all right, so do it without sound in one take. Like, there's just go use what you don't know to your advantage and go make something. Yeah. And I always bring up, I always bring up Jaws. I, I love the fact that like the shark sucked in Jaws and, you know, Spielberg found a way and it made it even better. And so you and are coming down to Chad's studio, uh, the art house here in Lockhart, and you've got a, a installation you're doing. Is that what it is? Can you talk a little bit about it? So I'm trying to focus on like one version of my art and, but have one piece that deviates from it. So a lot of my art specifically for this show is, it's my commentary on a lot of our current state of being. And, you know, I think my art, my art changes, I think, by, um, I think by mood, uh, I'm sure like most people. But um, this, this specific series is all about like me tapping in to just uh, kind of like a mirror on, I think, how I see things about our, our, our social media culture, our addiction to um, our phones, our, our, our addictions to um you know, how we kind of maybe even judge ourselves by how many followers we have. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing it mainly because I'm doing it too. I mean, I'm making fun of myself. So I'm just calling it out. I'm just calling it out. And so all my my stuff is basically a joke about look at how we are, right? But there's one piece that's in the show, which I couldn't help but put in because uh, as I was saying, I do a lot of music videos and um, film stuff. There's one thing in, in my part of the show that is technology positive, which is a couple years ago, a band reached out to me and said, we want to do a music video. And this is during um, the height of the pandemic and all that. And I go, well, look, um, I'm going to try to find an idea that I can do alone in my studio because I don't want to be around people. I don't, you know, I just I want to do something I can do completely solo. Um, I go, and I've had this idea for a long time. I want to I want to hand paint a music video. And I've never done this before. And uh, obviously I love painting and I love music videos and I love animation. So I'm, I'm gonna combine all this into making a hand-painted music video. And I gotta do it. They had basically no money. Um, and also I gotta do it in my studio, which is a tiny little space in Austin. So 
I've no money. Um, I, I want to hand. I want to do something where I can do by myself, and I've got basically an iPhone. Great. I'm going to hand paint an entire music video on one piece of wood. It's about like I don't know, like 20 inches wide, maybe 18 inches wide. I got a mount for my camera, for my phone to put over the painting, like a camera where my camera could look down on it. And frame by frame, I painted the entire music video. It's a Pink Floyd cover. The song is called Fearless. It's a six minute song, which I didn't even realize until I was like like a third way through. I'm like, what, what have I done? It took seven months to make. It's 3,771 paintings on one piece of wood. Um, and so that painting is on the wall at the show. And there's a QR code below it. So you could watch the YouTube link if you want. This video, because of the amount of attention you have to have, because you can't mess up in a hand-painted animation. Like, I can't go back a frame and fix it, you know, or, or whatever. There's no Photoshop. I can't, it, it, it is what it is. So you have to be so zero-focused, because of which it was like pure meditation. And I was just so into that painting, and every frame I was like so inside of it that I really don't, I didn't feel the weight of my body. I, I didn't notice the weather. I didn't, I didn't notice time. I definitely didn't eat as much as I should have. It was the weirdest. I watched the video now and I don't know who did it because I don't feel like, I, I was not operating my arms and my hand and my, my, it was just something, I was, I was floating, you know, while this video was being made and I just feel like I watched it. So it was a very powerful experience. And, um, um, but again, it, I took what I didn't have. I had no money. I had, I couldn't go outside. I didn't want to be around people. Um, and, you know, uh, and I had really no space. So I had to make something with, with nothing. And I think that's, again, back to that shark thing. I think about that all the time. Like, how do you lean into the pain, if you will, and use what you don't have to your advantage? You can see artwork by Roatash Rao at the Lockhart Art House through the month of June. Closing reception is on Sunday, July 2nd from 12 to 4 p.m. I've got a little show coming up at the end of the month, and uh, Dustin Welsh was kind enough to stop by and actually interview me about it. This is Dustin Welsh, and you're listening to the 78644 Podcast. Today we're sitting here with Stephen Collins, the band leader of Dead Man. I first became aware of Dead Man many, many years ago, and... Uh, Y'all have a, a show coming up. I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't want to call it a reunion show uh, because I've always thought of this band as almost like more of an idea or a concept in a way. I think that's accurate, yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard you describe it almost as a saga, uh, the, way that, the way that it's been the progression of this band. Uh, how long has it been since y'all have actually had a show? I think the last show I did, when I do a Dead Man show, it's it's a certain catalog of songs now, you know, that are on the albums. And um, I think the last time I kind of did something like that was maybe three or four years ago, you know, in, in Martindale. Yeah. I didn't I didn't really heavily promote it. I just wanted to play out there and um and uh, but the project itself I've been doing since 1999. And, uh, and is it, has the kind of cast been ever changing or is it mostly uh, the same folks or, or is it just? There are, uh, 
Yeah, it's it is it's kind of evolving cast. There's periods where the same people are working together. When I first got it together, you know, in the '90s was kind of the last period I think where you had alternative bands. You know that that concept I think sort of applies to today, but I don't see it as much. And maybe that's just because I'm not out there doing it as much. But back then. Um, then the nineties were still a really strong era for bands, you know, like alternative bands and you, there were indie labels and all that whole thing. And there was a record business. And so when I first started dead man, I, I wanted it to sort of have a band identity. Um, but I also started it after sort of being in a musical partnership for a long time with my friend, Greg Vanderpool, who is in Milton Mapes and uh, Monahan's and a great songwriter of his own, right? We, we had a, a, a long-standing band ever since we were in high school. And so when he decided he wanted to do his own thing, I was taking that opportunity to say, well, what, what would I do on my own? I didn't want to just be a solo artist. So I, I wanted a concept kind of thing or being in a band that but both of those seemed appealing to me. So it kind of became a vehicle for a certain sound that you were looking for. Yeah, exactly. And and w like when you first conceived of it, how how has this evolved? I guess. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it was a certain sound. At first, it it started with I wanted to find out or find explore Texas music from a cer certain unique perspective. I wanted to find a unique angle on that. Because um, at that time, um, you had your Texas country, your kind of red dirt sound that was very popular. Um, and you had your traditional Texas sounding music. You had Texas swing, you had Tejano, you had gospel music. Um, and I was like, I want to, I wanted to come at it from a artistic point of view and find a unique way to fit in as a Texas artist. Um, and that included story songs like Marty Robbins or Doug Som kind of things. Um, but also in tradition of someone who's not a Texas artist like Bob Dylan. Um, so that I was very drawn to exploring that. And the first couple of records were doing that. After that, I had kind of stumbled onto a sound. I wanted to take that wider and explore what that sound sounded like. Well, there's. it seems like there's always been a kind of a certain philosophy behind everything that you create. It's very intentional of what your, what your end product is gonna be. Uh, it's almost as if, if you are mixing the idea of, of being able to, to, uh, to conceive it on the spot but also and have that natural progression but also you have a very intentional way of, of your approach uh and so i've i've been fascinated by that and and this the the evolution of this band it's it's uniquely your own uh, <laughs> i i think i'm finally comfortable with that <laughs> you know what i mean that that it is that yeah well uh so we're actually sitting here in in your Troubadour studio here, and uh, how did you get interested in becoming a sound engineer? And what what brought you to 
deciding to to be able to make your own records. I got into making records as a vehicle to make my own work first and foremost, and the it happened with I had a a Tascam Porto One or whatever those were the little four track cassette. Oh yeah, you know yeah. I still love that machine, and um, and I would record a demo on there. And I would bring it to my bandmates. This was before Dead Man. And I would get something on there that I really was like, I loved the feel, you know. Then I would go to the big studio and and then I couldn't replicate it. Like the engineer, I would be like, yeah, I really want to drive that reverb up or I want to drive that guitar up there. And, and I was just kind of told to sit back and the, let the experts handle it. And I was like, you know what? I I really like what I'm... I couldn't and have the language to tell them why I liked it or I just knew that I wasn't getting the results that I heard in my head back on the final tape when I would go to the bigger studio. And, and so I... I had the Porta One, and then in the late 90s, they started to come out with these machines, and different companies were making them. I got a Roland one that was a 16-track recorder in a box. So it was like the Tascam 4-track cassette recorder, but 16 tracks digital had effects on board, the whole thing. It was like a I little... I remember those too, yeah. Yeah, and I, it was the first time someone like me could start to say, well, I could... I can, this does what it does at the studio. It recorded at 48 kilohertz, you know, it was at 24 bit. I was like, wow, you know, this was better than CD quality. I got one of those. Then I, I would uh, research a preamp that I would like a sound of or try it out. And I would buy one of those. And I just started piecing the, the studio together and, and getting back on as a final tape that sounded CD quality at that time that I heard in my head that was getting closer to that sound. You know what I mean? And this was just in your house and yeah, I would using have, a closet as an ISO booth. And I think it really started in high school um, where CDs were new in, in 89. I graduated in 91, you know? So I, was, I remember in high school uh, taking a realistic cassette tape that had it had one had two cassette players on it one was a recorder and i had a four channel pa system and we would go to a rent house and we would set up the drums in one room we'd set up the vocal booth in the bathroom and and we would bounce that back to make these kind of dub <laughs> records that were as close to multi track as we could do so we would make a mix through the mixer print that and then stack on top and it would get, you know, less f- high fidelity as it went, you know. But that's how we, that's how I started recording. And so when I got the Porta Studio thing, that was even better. And then the Roland thing was like a revolution. I could go. I remember going to racquetball courts and saying, "This is a fantastic reverb." <laughs> <laughs> Doing sessions in there and trying to learn how to, you know, okay, we're gonna have a cello in here, you know. And we would put the cello, and I would try to find the mic placement to where I could get the sound of the of the instrument and then blend it with their natural environment. And um, I'm still fascinated by that stuff. But yes, I would put it in the house. And finally, around 2000, I had bought a house in Dallas and I converted the garage 
into a studio about this size and I had the dedicated preamp and I had a sort of a beginnings of a real studio, you know. And were you able to do any kind of like apprenticeship work or, or did you study this in any kind of capacity? Yeah, I had been recording and I'm sure you have a similar experience, but I had been recording since I was 17, you know, going to studios. So I kind of knew the flow, but I didn't apprentice. I, I had wanted to do that. I didn't know really how to approach that. I, I feel like my apprenticeship was actually making my own records with bands. Like I was, the bands I was in, going in and doing it. And then um, doing the demos on the Porta One you know, that kind of thing. And I, in retrospect, I, I think it would have been really nice to, um, apprentice, but I think it would have had to have been someone that was doing something different at that time. Because when I would go to these studios, like I said, and this was happening in Dallas and in parts of Texas, I would come out with a very clean sound recording that wasn't necessarily what I wanted. So I think the apprenticeship would have had to have come from somebody who was experimenting with the studio at that time. It was not easy to make sounds that were, um, that you could do easier now due to the digital world at that time. It was, you had to kind of take effects and then blend them with environments. And it was, it was fun, you know. And making records that probably didn't sound like anything else also. It's unique to whatever that environment was and whatever yes. landscape you were in. Yes, and I love that aspect too. I still believe in that. I think that that has a big um, effect on records. And I still believe in the album as a piece of work where even though let's call it an EP for today's attention span, but I, that the piece of work is cohesive and it has a sonic identity, and you put it on, you'll go, that's that record, and it has that crew on it, and it has that sound, and you can, once you hear it, you know immediately what that is. It's just unique to, yeah, your your process. Yeah, or, or the process of make of whoever was making that record. I, I wanted yeah. to be a part of that experience. experience, right, and still do. That's why they call it a record. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a record of that particular moment. And then so eventually you all moved to Lockhart and you you built this studio. What was the town like in, in those days? I mean, what, what was the music scene like here? Well, it was very sleepy. There was not, there wasn't a music scene except for there were a couple of people that were musicians that lived here. Um, J.J. Krieger had his band that he had for a long time, the Fossils, and they kind of played. And uh, that was about it, you know. Um, there was what's now the El Rey was Cedar Hall, and they had a bunch of dance hall type country bands that would come through, and that was it, you know. Um, it was really kind of sleepy. And at that time, I lived next to Chris St. Ledger, and the he's an artist here in town, and we would just be like, man, it sure would be great to have a place to get a coffee or, or something like that, you know. But the good thing about it is that you spend a lot of time on people's porches and the socialization of Lockhart was going to people's houses and, and hanging out with them. Um, one of our friends had built sort of an English pub in his house, in his garage, and we would hang out there, you know, brewed his own brew and 
we would hang out and listen to the clash and <laughs> you know it was cool and uh so watching it grow has been pretty fascinating you know well and it's completely maintained that kind of community i i see as well mm-hmm. well once you were able to to establish the studio it seems like you sort of expanded your creativity to include you know all sorts of different mediums and uh, art forms aside from just music it seems like there's there's always several projects that you're involved in and i'm i'm told you host a podcast as well right <laughs> yeah yeah that's why you have to come in and talk to me because i'm usually doing this job <laughs> what brought you to start working for instance in film or uh, uh music videos well i had gone to film school and wanted to to make films at that time it was very expensive to make a film you know any kind of movie i think one of my friends had made a film on 16 millimeter then what do you do with it you know once you have it and um so i kind of put that side of me on hold and uh, but it, i still love stories you know but i remember a couple of years ago maybe five years ago some of the people that I was recording, they had no promotional material. And I noticed that YouTube was kind of really a, an instrumental tool in, in people discovering new music. And so I decided, well, I'll start to put some EPKs together for people. and um, Electronic press kits. Yeah, electronic press kits, yeah, which, which included visuals, you know, it's interviews, um, a, a music video style type of treatment where you could find out about the culture of an artist quickly. And that could be used for press or for your, or for the audience. So I got back into making film type of products in that way. I also realized that the gear, kind of like the studio was more accessible. I could get a, a camera that you could shoot a real TV show on and, and it was affordable and you could just get a bunch of lenses and it looked, you know, amazing on top of that the gear that the editing softwares and effects softwares are i mean if you're dedicated enough you can you can make star wars in your house you know whereas <laughs> you know you really can't and that fascinated me too as a kid of the 80s of like how far can you go with this you know i just love how huge your vision can be and and so that really expanded into well, like the uh, the performance y'all did with Dead Man as well, the the film, uh, or uh, what what was that called again? The uh, the the Chimes at Midnight movie that yeah. we did. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was that was kind of your your first foray into into making something for yourself. Yes. As well. Yeah, and I, I I wasn't directing that. I got uh, another person to direct it. It was a Dead Man project. It was a dual. EP, DVD combo, and the movie was called Chimes at Midnight. And um, we made it in what is now Commerce Hall. The whole thing is shot in there. Right. And um, it's a movie about uh, the metaphor for how music can can change things or, or save the situation. So it's like the whole thing is supposed to be this party that's happening in, in between here and the afterlife, you know? So, like, <laughs> you have, like you know, the spirit of, of Ernest Hemingway uh, getting in a bar fight with Falstaff. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
And then the whole time we're playing a gig. So it was, it's very weird. So that proceeded before you started actually making your own. Yeah. It kind of helped me get back in. It was right at the beginning of all that where I I was like, oh, I, I want to get back into this because it was so, it wasn't easy, but it was way easier than it used to be, you know, and, and, and you could get it done. We'll talk about some more of the other projects that you're working on right now. And where do you see that taking you? Really, I, I'm i just kind of in the moment, which is kind of the first time for me in a while. Um, but I am I have, you know, Dead Man is, is me when I'm doing these this catalog of songs. I still write for it, which is I wasn't sure that I was going to do that. After the last record, I thought I may have, it may have run its course, but... There's certain songs that when I write them, that that's where they belong. It's just, it's that sound. And so I thought, well, okay. So I've slowly been doing that and doing the show. I hope it's the beginning of, of taking those songs out and then just working in a live area again with that catalog and, and with that sound. Another project is um, my friend Scott Davis and I, when I first moved to Lockhart, Scott was my roommate, and we had been doing a lot of work together at my old place. And um, we were both looking to make a change where we lived and came down here to Lockhart because we found the house and was able to um, kind of make a hub out of it, you know? He's one of my favorite musicians, so yeah. I, yeah, I, I love him. He's a good, good fellow, good, good pal of mine, too. And so during that era, we would be recording, and Scott started working for Hayes, Carl. And he would come off the road, and I'd be like, hey, we got this tune. And he would just be like, play something and then go get, you know, go get something to eat. <laughs> it was very revolving door. Just organic, though. Yeah. And he, he was working on a solo record, and we discovered a sound that was very similar to the process of the early Roy Haley recordings of Simon and Garfunkel. You know, so the folk sound, but there was a sound they made in a process they used that I was trying out on that record. And, and it tur- turned out that we had a a sound that was similar to that, but it's still our own, but it evoked that kind of feeling. And so we explored that and that became Brothers of Mercy. And that's kind of the, when we do our thing, like that's where we, we are, but we did a show recently for the Sun Radio um Wednesday night things they they did. And that's the first time we actually used a band behind us. Well, this is this show that y'all have coming up. It's a big deal. And uh, the historic Commerce Hall, uh, which is one of my favorite rooms I've ever heard. 150-year-old building. It was the original Masonic Lodge uh, in on the square. So you're bringing bringing Dead Man back after all these years, I'd like to be able to hear a song at least uh, that's some kind of representation if, if you don't mind playing something for us. Yeah, sure. Probably something new that shows kind of what I've been up to, um, but it's got the same vibe that, they, that it's had in the past. And the sound that Dead Man has, it's like there's a, I, I call it, sort of musical impressionism. Does that make sense when I say that? Absolutely. So... Yeah, that's a good term for it. Yeah, that's that's what I... And the song structure is you have your, your classic form or you, most of the time. But instead of the hard lines of like, here's the 
here's the here's the structure of the instrumentation. I like to to have that there, but then then to wash things out with some ambient sounds or sounds that evoke emotion, and then that that will treat this the recording or the live performance with a um, with uh, with another emotional palette instead of just the song. That's what keeps me fascinated. Ashes to ashes And dust to dust The guy in the mirror Looks really messed up The world I walk in here from no longer there When I look in your eyes The mystery's told Four horsemen are riding On the horizon line Their hooves sound like thunder the stories of old Don't lead into darkness Don't let my love run cold Don't lead into darkness They say that a man Yes, and I say a man is made up of soul. When you look deep into a child's eyes, don't Choose to wake up, hold them close to your chest. 
band is playing at Commerce Hall on June 23rd at 8 p.m. Thank you, Dustin. It was great talking with you. Attention all hat lovers. You are cordially invited to a once-in-a-lifetime celebration of the master hatter himself, David Torres, at Texas Hatters. If you own a hat crafted by David, this is a can't-miss event. Join us on July 2nd from noon to 6 p.m. at Texas Hatters to celebrate the incredible skills and talent of one of the world's most renowned hatters. Bring your David Torres hat and mix and mingle with other hat enthusiasts while enjoying mouth-watering barbecue from Kreitz Market. But the fun doesn't stop there. We're also calling on all musicians who own a David Torres hat to get in touch with Texas Hatters at 512-398-4287 for a chance to perform at the event. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to showcase your talent and entertain fellow hat aficionados. So mark your calendars, grab your David Torres hat, and get ready for a day of fun, food, and festivities at Texas Hatters. We can't wait to see you there. Come on down to Texas Hatters, where we top the best. Lockhart has become a destination outside of Austin. I think people from San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston are starting to learn about Lockhart. It's not just about barbecue. It's also about live music. Um, it's about art. It's about a community that is coming together and there's a lot of excitement on the square. I purchased this house in 2021 and I loved it because it has great architecture. It was built in 1925. During the 1960s, it was purchased by Marcus Haynes, who is a Harlem Globetrotter. There is a garage apartment next door to it as well. And it has kind of a New Orleans feel look to it. We put ferns out past the wrought iron. Both of these properties sit on a third of an acre, just off the square in Lockhart. What are you waiting for? Book your stay at the Little Alamo B&B in Lockhart, Texas. Like, today. And now for a special report by Mary Catherine Davenport. Thank you, Stephen. This is Mary Catherine Davenport, and today I am not telling you about Lockhart traffic from Johnny Medina's helicopter. Today, the best view of traffic is right here on the ground. This is the best day of the year, Chisholm Trail Parade Day. And folks, the Roaring Lion Band and the floats and the random people driving golf carts have just been incredible this year. And oh my, oh my, here comes the Floresville Peanut Queen. I wish you could see this sparkly float. It is just blinding with all those gold peanuts glued everywhere. You know, I had a dog named Peanut when I was a girl, just the cutest thing. Now, Stephen, don't bother asking me. I have no recollection why we named him Peanut. He did not resemble a peanut in any way. But you know, he liked to eat peanuts. Which is, which is really kind of meta if you think about it. You know, his name was Peanut and he ate peanuts. I guess that's kind of like if my name was Margarita with salt. Uh, anywho, wait, 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 look. Uh, here he comes, here he comes. My all-time favorite float, the Lampasas Spring Hose. Just look at those cute girls in their little pink dresses and their great big 
flowers? You know, my best friend in high school, Sherry Lynn, was from Lampasas, but she never got to be a spring hoe. Uh, to be fair, she was kind of a all-year-round hoe. Uh, but just look, look at this beautiful float. All the girls just smiling and waving like life depended on it. <laughs> anyhow, uh, anywho, and now here comes the horse brigade, all braided and prancy. Look at that gorgeous one with that long silver mane. Maybe I should let my hair grow silver and give up my forever summer blonde hair color in a box. I'm, I'm just so afraid it wouldn't come out silver. It could very well grow out the color of a tin can. Anywho, well, you know, when the horses come out that the parade is pretty much over for another year. The only thing to see after the horses is the pooper scoopers. Reporting from the 2023 Chisholm Trail Parade, this is Mary Catherine Davenport. Back to you, Steve. Thank you, Mary Catherine. Always great to hear from you on what's happening out there in uh, Lockhart, either whether it's in the sky or on the ground. It's fantastic. Just a reminder that our lineup is featured on our Instagram page and daily in our stories called The Roundup. If you want to know what's going on in town tonight, check out 78644 Podcast on Instagram. It's also the place to find out when our next episode is out. Just want to remind you about our 78644 Locals program. It's a $5 or more a month subscription where all proceeds go directly to musicians. And this month we were able to donate around $250 to Jane Leo as they won the drawing. And next month it just gets a bigger pot as we get more subscribers. So subscribe today on our website at 78644podcast.com and uh, you can help musicians directly. Okay, Friday, June 16th, Courthouse Nights is happening with Garrett T. Caps and DJ Island Time is starting at 7 p.m. there. Old Pal will have Country Willie Edwards, The Pearl will have Sharita Perez starting at 8 to 10 p.m. Arts and Craft will have Defoy Music starting at 8 into 10 p.m. And the Martindale River Cafe will have Eric Flores. Saturday, June 17th, Old Pal will have Charlie Murphy. Prince had on like a, it was like a Zorro type outfit. He had the ruffles that come down in the front. He had the big perms flushed down and all of that. And the, the, the mustache and everything that was drawn on his face. And it looked like something that a figure skater would wear. Load off Fannies, we'll have Pride Week celebration finale. Live music, potluck, karaoke, 12 to 10 p.m. June 18th, the Pearl will have the W.C. Clark matinee from 3 to 5 p.m. Loda Fannies will have Die Hard Cynic, presented by the product Caldwell County. Wednesday, June 21st, Best Little Wine and Books, Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corners, happening from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Thursday, June 22nd, Old Pal will have Paul Finney, and El Ray will have karaoke. Friday, June 23rd, Old Pal will have the Vinmont Blues Band, Commerce Hall will have Rachel Rhodes presents A Night with Dead Man. That's me and my music. It's $10 at the door. Doors open at 7. The show's at 8. And this is a 78644 event, so if you're a member or a subscriber to our show, there'll be a little something waiting for you at the door. Uh, be sure to let the door person know that you are a 78644 friend. 
Martindale River Cafe will have Mark Younger's and Lodoff Fanny's will have two bins and a bear starting at 7, ending at 9 p.m. Saturday, June 24th, Lodoff Fanny's will have jams with Jenny. Second and fourth Saturdays is when that's happening, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. Old Pal will have Emily Herring and Arts and Craft will have a memorial celebrating the life of Joseph William Burks from 7 to 10 p.m. We miss you, Joe. Sunday, June 25th, Old Pal will have brunch with Graham Wilkinson. That's from 12 to 2 p.m. Arts and Craft will have the Irish music session starting at 4.30 and going to 7.45 p.m. Tuesday, June 27th, the Dr. Eugene Clark Public Library presents an evening with a songwriter. The songwriter that night is Greg Whitfield. It's hosted by Fletcher Clark. Wednesday, June 28th, the Pearl will have Chris Lancaster from 7 to 9 p.m. Best Little Wine and Books will have Mr. Carter's Smooth Blues Corner starting at 6.30 going to 9 p.m. Thursday, June 29th, Old Pal will have Beth Lee 7 to 9 p.m. Arts and Craft will have Mark Willenborg 7 to 8 p.m. And El Ray will have Karaoke. Friday, June 30th, Old Pal will have The Light Aluminum. The Pearl will have Tony Taylor starting from 8 to 10 p.m. And the Martindale River, and the Martindale River Cafe will have Van Darien playing that night. And that's it for the 78644 News. I've been grieving But can't tell how My mind is Now, Garrett T. Caps calls himself a bad mofo. Well, that's what it says on his website. He makes cowboy kraut with his band NASA Country and also lots of Tex-Mex rock and roll. He is a proud San Antonio resident and San Antonio's resident cosmic country gonzo honky-tonk weirdo freak. He is a national treasure in Holland and he can usually be found at his own bar, The Lonesome Rose, that he owns in San Antonio. But in all seriousness, Garriott stopped by the studio to discuss how he's starting to take his work seriously, his new music, and how it's taken a while to stumble upon a definitive Texas sound that might also be driven by philosophy. We had a great conversation. I, I became passionate about writing kind of music in the vein of Texas songwriters, uh, from around here and at some point started trying to do it myself and found myself in San Antonio and it's very relaxed musical climate forming a band and kind of making this kind of somewhere in between cow punk and Texas roots rock kind of stuff lyrically uh, forward and even if I didn't know what the lyrics meant but kind of like I got this band of kind of San Antonio rock scene veterans to be in my band and we started playing around town and we recorded a record, my first album, and that song that album has a song called Born in San Antonio on it. We had like a local album release party and all this stuff, but a few years later, the director of this show called Billions on Showtime heard my song 
born in Santone on Spotify, and he tried really hard to get a hold of me. And my email was bouncing back, and I mean, I was like totally green. I was like in my mid-20s and just gigging around San Antonio. This was kind of a wake-up call, like the big world finally was acknowledging this song, which it's kind of like a anthem in a lot of ways, and I, I didn't really think that I would take it outside of town. But uh, yeah, fast forward to like 2018, that song is in uh, this show, and I gained a pretty sizable audience like from the way he placed the song and it and all these kind of like Doug Som cult people from all over the world or people that love San Antonio or they're from there all found my music and at the same time I kind of geared up for this release by making another album my album In the Shadows which like I had put a different band together <laughs> to uh to do that album and that album has like some pretty interesting synth textures and all kind of within this more hard-driving honky-tonk thing. So I released that album when the new Billions series season came out, and that kind of started my whole taking my career seriously. That that got me to Holland for the first time. Um, that started giving me better gigs in Austin, some festival gigs outside of Texas, and, I mean, it's all... I really live for for the rush of going to the next place and just playing music live and recording the next album, trying to make that next album better than the next one. We're better than the last one. So that's all I've been doing with my, with my, uh, my music and pretty much my life. Uh, it feels like it's always a slow burn. There are moments of glory and despair, but, <laughs> that's uh, a good way, yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I'm like grateful to be able to to do any of this stuff and have all the friends that I make music with and and these days like I'm pretty focused on making music with my band in San Antonio NASA Country. We've definitely they're the band that played on the album in the shadows. I had no really plan for how long that band was going to be together or what we were going to do. But now because we were hunkered down in San Antonio for two years, we became really close and. It shows in our music, and I'm really proud of how unique we are. We're, I say we're the only space country band from San Antonio in the universe. We made this last record, People Are Beautiful, uh, during the pandemic. It was old news by the time it came out last October, but the response was really, really, really good. And it's kind of breathed some new life into it, and we're working on the next one. It feels like we're in summer of 2023. It feels like... Uh, at least as far as planning live music events goes, like you can kind of start thinking more forward. I mean, as a independent touring musician with aspiring goals and delusions of grandeur. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like hard to do that when you think it's all going to get canceled. Like, Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it was like it that would. for everyone. It, but It the, would, yeah. The entire industry has been playing catch up since the world kind of opened back up. And I feel like right now I'm just like, we're in between albums. The last album was like a cool little glimpse of what's next and took us some places. And I'm just like, we're having fun gigging and working on the new stuff and seeing where that goes. Are you finding that the new material is, is different from the old stuff? Is it kind of a different sonics and stuff? Yeah, with that band, uh, we've definitely like gotten groovier and more psych rock and 
definitely like it's definitely like way more i've i've been used to over the years like kind of arranging the songs and telling the bands what to do <laughs> but this band it's it's more democratic or something like that all those guys listen to like jazz and stuff it's hard to get some of that past these like music heads <laughs> when i look back at the show like in, in every way i mean there was obvious exposure but it was also kind of this yeah it was realization that like following my dreams is real it's not just some you know get drunk on the weekends and you know that's it <laughs> like yeah. like taking it made me take it more seriously and there's there's been some other other breaks since then everyone has their victories or their little moments of like uh acceleration and whatever path they're going on i think Living in San Antonio and the music scene is really relaxed. Playing in the Austin music scene where there's a lot of fans, big social scene, a lot of serious musicians of all calibers and styles. I think that's also been like a driving thing to like help me take it seriously, take my music seriously and want to want to grow and, and find my own way. I, I didn't know this until we were talking earlier that, that you own a venue in San Antonio. Yeah. I do. It's it's definitely been uh, a product of. I mean, we're celebrating five years in November. What's it called? It's called the Lonesome Rose. We're kind of like a filling the void of this indie honky tonk world that really wasn't there in San Antonio. I was starting to play, get more involved with like the indie country scene when when I heard that my partners. My future partners were opening a place like this. They owned other bars. And also like around the time that that my song was in the show and I came out with the Space Country album, like Sturgill Simpson blew up. And that kind of like paved the way for a lot of indie country uh, songwriters and performers. So this was kind of like a big thing. Like all these bands that I'm friends with, I was including myself, don't have a home to play in San Antonio. So these people were going to open a kind of honky-tonk bar and then my friend and I that had been booking bands and shows for myself we uh asked him if we could just be part of the whole thing that's great and and, so you so you kind of form your own uh culture that way you know yeah Not, so we're trying to build a scene still trying to build a scene down there uh for that kind of music I don't know the city of San Antonio is big and already has an awesome lots of awesome music happening and Stuff like that. But yeah. as far as what we do at the Rose, like we try to promote culturally relevant music and we also do rock shows and punk shows. That's cool. But on the weekends we do country bands. San Antonio is so familial and community based, like it's just about the people.
some forgotten day Flying high enough to crash right into sorrow Falling low enough to find a better place Some kind of delusion Buying into all the fear and all the blame We're all suffering through unprofound conclusion And time and memory will always make it strange Team Austin Realtors, The Little Alamo Airbnb, El Rey Bar and Nightclub, and Birdie House. In-kind sponsors are Williams Island, Courthouse Nights, Printing Solutions, Gaslight Baker Theater, and Crystal Glaze Photography. Our show is produced by Kate Collins, recorded at Troubadour Image and Sound here in Lockhart, Texas, edited by myself, Stephen Collins, with Danny Manning. Thanks to our contributor, Kara McGregor this time, uh, music by... Garrett T. Caps, Deadman, and Vandarian. Our show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Amazon, Radio Public, and everywhere else where podcasts are streamed. Thanks for listening. Just to say I'm